This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Yellow King Role-Playing Game. Robert Graves. Half-Elves. And Harry Houdini's Ghostbusters. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books, Play for Players, Run for GMs, and reveal the Book of the Weird for everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there, right now. Once more, we approach the closet, which seems to shift eerily from a period armoire to a metal ammunition uh, rack to a disturbingly twisted take on arts and crafts to a piece of Ikea garbage. But out of it comes a number <laughs> of hats, regardless but the hats themselves twist and change. There's a mauve trilby. There's a Chicago Whales baseball cap. There's a regulation French cappy. And there's a Toronto Blue Jays baseball cap, which, however, has a tearing claw mark in it. Oh, no, a claw mark. We mustn't look. Because all of these hats go on the head of Robin Laws, and all of these heads have created the Yellow King role-playing game. Robin, tell us about it. Yeah, so uh, now Kickstarting over on the Kickstarter, so you can either follow the link in the show notes or go over to Kickstarter and search for Yellow King role-playing game. The game that I've been working on for over half a year now is now available for you to further awesomeize, which I believe is, is the correct verb to use in this case. Uh, so I thought we would uh, briefly talk about what that is. Obviously, uh, those of you who know your weird uh, horror uh, stories know that uh, Robert W. Chambers uh, wrote four really influential horror stories, uh, all of which sort of surround the idea that uh, he was sort of, he was writing in 1895, but he was writing about memes, basically, about ideas or artistic expressions that could not only drive you crazy and lead you to hallucinate a whole other alternate reality in which you are about to become Emperor of America, but also can literally uh, summon uh, an alien uh, warlord from another planet to come and attack you, or just shift reality itself under you, and that the either if you read the uh, the play, the the King in Yellow. And especially if you read its blasphemous second act, its its first act is 
weird and anodyne, but it's the second act that drives you crazy. Or if you even see the yellow sign, the symbol that goes with it, it can start to sort of catapult you into an entirely new reality. And the idea behind this game is that the appearance of the play in 1895 has uh, breaks up reality itself and shifts uh, uh, timelines and, and creates uh, alternate realities so that uh, the players in this game, you're not just playing one set of players, but that over time you play a series of sort of alternate connections of yourself or reiterations of yourself over time and uh, and over reality itself. So uh, the first one is a game set in Paris in 1895, as is Chambers' story, The Mask. And that book is just called Paris. We're talking about four books that come in a groovy slipcase. And the first book, the Paris book, is the one that has the gumshoe rules in it. So it has all the new adjusted uh, rules that you need to play this setting. The second book is called The Wars. Uh, that is one in which you play soldiers in a great continental European war that takes place in 1947 uh, between your side, which en encompasses uh, France, and uh, what the sides are in this conflict uh, is a matter of uh, what happened in the previous session in the, in the Paris sequence. And then you move on from there to Aftermath, which takes the hallucinatory events of the story, The Repairer of Reputations, treats them as if they really happened, but they happened in 1920, and now it's the present day, and you're a group of revolutionary partisans who have overthrown the evil Yellow King-affiliated Castain regime, and now you're attempting to rebuild a new, just, democratic America. But not all of the weird creatures are quite out of view yet. So uh, as you're trying to rebuild your own individual lives and get back to uh, a sense of normality and maybe, you know, make your uh, country a better place, there's still weirdness that keeps uh, pulling you back in. And then the final uh, sequence uh, is called This Is Normal Now, and that is uh, basically a contemporary modern day setting, again, where you wind up, uh, you start out as ordinary people, but then you start to get drawn into the uh, whole Yellow King situation and maybe start to apprehend the fact that you have lived other lives or that your ancestors who went from America to Paris in 1895 may have had something weird happen to them. And so it's sort of, uh, if you want to play it in a grand campaign mode, ties everything all together. But you can also opt to just play a one-shot in any of these uh, settings or sequences, as I call them, or you can uh, mix them up, you can match them, uh, but uh, whatever you're doing, your your characters are going to be uh, dealing with the madness and supernatural power of Carcosa and the Yellow King. And all of this is, uh, as I believe we mentioned up top, on Kickstarter as we speak, and what kind of cool rewards are available besides the unutterable coolness of the game. I know that there is a, that once more, the 1890s have come through for Pulgrain Press and provided material that is eerily gameable. And in this case, there's some sort of weird, louche, uh, degenerate artist's guide to Paris that you already found. Yeah. So basically, it turns out that a number of writers have basically already written a great Paris source book for 1895. It merely needs to be compiled. Mm -hmm. uh, now, we're going to compile this in the most beautifully visually stunning way possible. Those of you who backed the Dracula dossier uh, Kickstarter may recall 
the Hawkins papers. Certainly Simon and Cat recall the Hawkins papers. <laughs> right right now they're sitting bolt upright, shaking their fists at the at the speaker. <laughs> the speaker is Robin. Right. Uh, and that came as both a PDF of uh, found documents um, made by uh, Dean Engelhart, who is uh, on board again to do uh, Absinthe and Carcosa, but also in what we might now term a bit of folly, let's say that they, they <laughs> promised to make physical versions of all these uh, documents as handouts uh, that then uh, backers could purchase. Well, my thought was, you know that awesome PDF? Why don't we just publish it as a book yeah. <laughs> instead of tea-staining a bunch of stuff? So what we're going to do is take a bunch of these uh, uh, found uh, documents that do a much better job of uh, being RPG source books than than I could do, and then mix them together uh, in this stunning color visual presentation with uh, additional uh, bits of uh, printed eph ephemera, or and then there's going to be an, an, a level of uh, stuff that actually ties you into the Yellow King mythos, so there'll be all these weird scrawls and descriptions on the side. So not only will you get the description of the Louvre from the popular travel guide of the period, but then there'll be notes uh, scribbled underneath uh, and again, this is just this is a printed uh, product, but it'll be a beautiful full color one uh, that will allow your players to pick this up, and it'll be totally player facing. So it'll be like a book of ants or uh, other previous books in the in that uh, vein. That uh, it's it's an in world document, like the book of smoke as well. And so there's nothing in it to indicate that it's a, a game product, but you hand it to your players, and then when they look up where the Louvre is or you know, try to figure out which hotel to check into after they've been kicked out of the current hotel, they can see all of these weird clues and ideas scrawled in the margins that can then lead them in sort of a self-directed um, direction that can supplement the more created scenarios that you present to them. So it's similar to the Book of Smoke or the Book of Ants, but with a high-gloss Hawkins Papers style production. Is that a fair statement? That is that is so fair. It it shines as a as a marketing quote. A marketing quote. Normally, when we start doing marketing quotes, we leave a hut. But we're here. That's the whole point of this hut. Is the marketing. This quotes. is among my many hats. After this all. is among my many hats. It's full of marketing quotes. Uh, the original question was, what other goodies are there? Um, I'm also writing a novel that is set in the mm. aftermath setting. It's a follow up from one of my stories in my New Tales of the Yellow Sign. Short story collection. Yes, or collection, yes, because you're only one writer. And in fact, those who have read that will recognize the roots of all of these different settings because there's a, a war story in there. Uh, there's a There aren't any 1895 stories, but there's a bunch of contemporary stories. <laughs> and there's this story, which is uh, set in the aftermath setting. And so it'll be picking up uh, one of the characters, the r repairman who repairs the uh, government lethal chamber uh, is uh, an ex-partisan hero who goes around solving problems. And so this uh, novel, which is called The Missing and the Lost, uh, will present a, a, a novel-length adventure of uh, the repairman. And then we also have a super groovy, all rolled up. It's sort of a dice bag, but it's so much more than a dice bag. The Dracula dossier version of this won the Any Award for Best Accessory. And uh, it's uh, basically a gorgeous carrying scroll uh, not only for your dice, but for any other uh, implements of uh, gaming wonder that you're going to want to bring to your uh, Yellow King role-playing game table. Fantastic. So that's the exoteric. Now let us delve into the esoteric. People who back it and get the sumptuously already mostly wrote PDFs 
Uh, we'll notice that it is not the standard friendly gumshoe system that they've come to love and admire above all game engines. It, it's, it's still friendly. It's, it's still, friendly in it's, a different way. But it's friendly and different. Yeah. It has elements that uh, seem to me to have been drawn from your work on Cthulhu Confidential and Gumshoe One-to-One uh, with the cards and the sort of more fixed uh, outcomes from tangling with bad guys. People who say gumshoe combat is, is such a mechanical uh, thing. It's, it's so unevocative compared to the richness of the investigation. You're like, ha ha people. It can get even less interesting. We will have a fast roll and move through it. And is this because uh, stories of louche artists wandering around uh, half drunk in Paris is not combat stories. I get that, but you actually have war stories counterinsurgency stories in there, plus covert monster hunting, which I believe is hallowed by tradition is to have lots of combat in it. Why the decision to go with the minimalist combat approach? Well, I, of course, I would dispute less interesting. Obviously, you would. Um, it's I'm more speaking narrative. from the perspective of people who want more. If, if you want to do a lot of rolling and back and forth and, and have combat be a long part of the session, you will want to take the standard version of combat, perhaps from Knights Black Agents, and splice it in. But this is a combat system that I would argue is more in keeping with the rest of Gumshoe. Uh, it is now entirely player-facing, so the GM is no longer faced with that thing of, well, I guess I'll just decide for the creature how many points to spend. Uh, and you make one roll, but then you narrate uh, the results. And what is important, I think, in an investigative game, in a, a horror in pretty well any horror story, first of all, the extended back and forth of combat is not what matters so much as the results of that, the consequences of it. So uh, what instead takes the place of a long combat in play is the lingering effect of whatever specific wounds that you take, either physical or mental, that uh, you acquire either from straight-up fights or for encounters with physical hazards. In the wars, there's a battlefield ability, which is your ability to survive in the midst of a combat zone where you have no real control over the uh, success or victory, but you're just trying not to be killed in the kill zone. And so you can wind up with a major or a minor injury card, and all of those have very specific mechanical effects. And right. so while you have those cards, that has a big emotional impact on you. So I would argue that the shift is more is not between... Uh, more or less interesting or more or less mechanical, but between a sort of a shift into the tactical rather. And, and here we have something that has more of a lingering emotional effect on you because people really uh, relate to those cards and the wounds that they're taking as, as part of those cards. And as you suggest, um, that is from my discovery of how emotionally compelling it is to get or to get rid of a card in Gumshoe One to One. There is a, a very nice little tactical element at the beginning of combat in the Yellow King system, which uh, I, I I hesitate to spoil for other people, but it but it is it, it is a, an interesting element, and it does make combat its own sort of element. It's it's sort of mini decision equipment, and I can see a lot of sort of uh, possible design branches coming off of that. To go back to the question of cards, play of this game does involve passing out a lot of cards. Are there going to be cards, physical cards, as part of the Kickstarter, or is it going to be a thing where you download them from drive-through cards? It's going to be a thing where you take your PDF and you cut them on a piece of paper. And, and you cut them up on a piece of paper like an animal. Well, all right. And, and the reason for that is just that every set of cards is... is uh, think of it, I think, more as not you're handing out a playing card that's in a card deck, 
but rather you're handing somebody an index card yeah. that has a bit of rules text on it. Right. Uh, because the point is to customize them all very specifically so that the creature stats, each creature has its own set of possible wounds that it might deal out to you. Mm-hmm. Now, there's certain standard ones like, you know, you, you get shot or you get stabbed or whatever, but, you know, a creature, you know, might give you a, a black bile in the brain and that has a very specific uh, rules uh, effect that is particular to it. And so uh, the uh, the fun of that is finding out, you know, what new horrible uh, condition you have as a result of uh, tangling with this uh, yes. with this beast. I, I, I know because I had that very fun uh, during our playtest in Simon's house. Right. And as far as spoilers are concerned, if you back the Kickstarter, uh, as you have in previous similar Pelgrane uh, projects and as you did with Feng Shui, you immediately get a, a PDF of my rough work in progress. So you can immediately see uh, what it is and how it works and you can see how that a bit of the, the the game operates, and so uh, you know what you're getting, and you know that it's uh, already mostly finished, uh, absent the cool stretch goals that I hope people will support to make it uh, biggerer and betterer. Biggerer and betterer. Now, Robert W. Chambers wrote a lot of other things besides uh, the four short stories for which his memory will be eternal. Are elements of other Chambersiana uh, coming in out of left field into the game, or is this? The four uh, Chambers short stories, the dozen or so Robin short stories, and that is our canon. The uh, thing that you already know about uh, Chambers and are leading me to say is that most of those other stories are terrible. Yes, it is fair. It's a yeah. fair statement. There's, there's three sets of Chambers horror stories, and horror was just one, like he was a multi-genre yeah. uh, writer, and he most he became famous later for writing sort of best-selling kind of romance uh, stories about rich New Yorkers. And, and uh, historical fiction in which true love uh, conquered all. Right. But as far as uh, his weird fiction goes, there's the four Yellow King uh, stories. There's some kind of cool ghost stories inspired by Ambrose Bierce, uh, most of which revolve around the fact that someone that you're talking to uh, turns out to later you discover they're a ghost, mm-hmm. uh, which is a device that Bierce also really liked. And so, uh, yes, there are stats for what happens when the person you're talking to later turns out to have been a ghost. So that's one of the good, ways good. to... So there are little nods in, uh, to that. Mm-hmm. But uh, others of his stories, uh, there is one set in Brittany about a, uh, a skull that comes back at you, uh, the skull of a sorcerer, which is kind of okay. And so I'm hoping there'll be uh, support for uh, our stretch goal that introduces the folklore of Brittany, and uh, uh, you would see reference to that. Uh, but in general, it's pretty thin gruel. Also, what you won't find are all of the things that were added to uh, pull the Yellow King into the Cthulhu mythos. Right. So there's none of the Durlif, uh stuff, which is uh, not in the public domain, unlike Chambers. Yeah. Uh, or uh, a lot of the things that other people have added on to Durlith and added on to Chaosium's take on the Yellow King, which also not in the public domain. Right. So um, if you want to add Cthulhu stuff to the Yellow King, it's, it's easy enough to do. <laughs> it's been uh, done. Yes. But if you want to add it into this game, you've got another gumshoe game that, that does that. It's and uh, At least one. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one of the stretch goals will be that we'll present uh, stats for the public domain uh, Cthulhu uh, creatures uh, for the new combat system. But by and large, we're not trying to do an overall Lovecraftian mythos thing with a hint of chambers, but rather envision an expanded mythos that uses chambers as its starting point. Now, there's another Chambersian concept that is uh, not a particularly good novel, uh, but 
has sort of taken off in popular culture, and it's the Tracer of Lost Persons. And he's a guy who would use his sort of psychic powers to figure out who was reincarnated across time and was actually meant to be together. And that seems like that could be an element that fits into the multi-stranded time-spanning shtick of Robert W. Chambers. Is there a possibility of introducing a romance element into your uh, awesome horror game, much as Robert W. Chambers introduced romance elements into his horror stories? Um, I think that romance is a, a sort of its own separate... Uh, kettle of fish. There was a point when I was thinking of doing the modern setting as drama system that would turn into gumshoe, uh, but I think that play-wise, that, that would make sense to do in the modern setting. In the modern setting, I think I want to have it sort of conclude on a simpler, more basic note after having gone through these different Baroque and elaborate sequences. And uh, So that's something to think about, but it's not something I'm currently planning on making a, a defining feature of that setting. Cool, cool. And uh, obviously there are some uh, Chambersian monsters in uh, Police and Into the Unknown that maybe might be showing up as well? Um, I'm not going to struggle to pull in the terrible chamber stuff just because I can. But Even if rather, the stories are terrible, the monsters are still sometimes pretty good. Well, we'll have to have a discussion offline. As to, we will uh, have to have a discussion offline. Okay. Anyways, um, what else is in uh, the Yellow King experientially? There's a there's a great deal of information on Paris, and w- there will be even more in Absinthe and Carcosa if you are uh, not lost to reason and, and pick that up. Uh, what, o- what other um, delights uh, await the uh, the consumer of these lovely books over and above the delight of playing the game and going through the sort of weird, reincarnative, tangled uh, timeline fun that is the sort of high concept of the piece? Um, well, each of the settings has its own high uh, concept. Uh, as you suggest, um, the Paris one is about interacting with a historical setting. So in a way, it sort of echoes and, in fact, even kind of prefigures Dreamhounds of uh, Paris. You can even, there's even a couple of the same people. Uh, Eric Satie is a young man in uh, uh, the I think Matisse is in there too. Uh, yeah, and uh, and so you, you can uh, sort of link that up. Uh, but it's that sort of experience where you're dealing with a lot of historical figures in a real place. Uh, the Wars is about uh, sort of doing a weird war game where you're dealing not only with uh, the uh, the horror that's the main focus of an uh, scenario, but also you have a military goal that you're supposed to achieve at the same time. Uh, Aftermath has a politics uh, system in it where you're uh, accumulating uh, or gaining or losing cards that represent your political influence. You decide what your uh, goal is going to be. And then, as I suggested earlier, the, the modern game sort of uh, pulls it all back down into a, uh, a classic horror story. But again, now you're interacting with kind of modern uh, concepts. And so that's all about the charge that you get from, well, if the Yellow King is a meme, now we're in a setting where people use the word meme. And, you know, what if, uh, you know, someone is using an app to spread a Yellow King madness as they are in one of those stories from New Tales of the Yellow Sun. So um, that's basically the idea of a four-part campaign where you feel interconnections and Easter eggs between all of them and you get sort of a sense of added richness, but it uh, doesn't bog down into feeling samey-samey that each of them has its own uh, very distinct feel. And I think at this point, uh, a distinct feeling on the part of uh, listeners is that they uh, either want to head right over to the Kickstarter right now or maybe want us to head right over to another segment.
I've been covertly mentioning it like crazy these past few months. But now it's time for you to overtly announce... That the Yellow King role-playing game from Palgrain Press is now on Kickstarter. Based on the influential horror tales of Robert W. Chambers. This latest gumshoe flagship title sends your players on a mind-bending journey through twisted histories and alternate selves. From Paris in 1895 to Europe's shattering 1947 Continental War. To the ruins of the Castaigne regime to a world like our own. Or nearly so. When I played a section of the Paris sequence, I was the architecture student. Help us add even more content to all four of the core books, which nestle together as a single product in one elegant, not to mention magnetic, slipcase. We got chased by a spider statue. Also snap up our gorgeous found object collage Paris source book, Absinthe in Carcosa. My character drank copiously and engaged in the witticisms of the doomed. And a novel by yours truly. Stretch a goal or two before the King in Yellow comes for you. Go to Kickstarter and search Yellow King Roleplaying Game. Or dare to look at the sinister link in the show notes. The gleam of leather-bound volumes, perhaps the slight tang in the air of mildly decaying paper, tell us that we are surrounded by the beautiful shelves of the book hut. And this time around, Raphael Pabst, Patreon backer Raphael Pabst, uh, wants us to explore the work of Robert Graves. Graves is, I think, now less of a, a literary influence than a sort of a covert influence on certain subcultures, but in his heyday, he was a, a literary titan. He died in 1985 at the ripe old age of 90, having written uh, novels, a lot of poetry. If you were expecting an evaluation of his poetry, I think you may have come to the wrong hut. Is that true, Ken? Uh, well, I don't know enough about modern poetry to say. Yeah. I know that Robert Graves is one of the few modern poets who I can read with pleasure, so I like it, but I uh, I can't tell you why. I just I it's something about the way that he piles the specific words up that I just like that I like that look. But that's the same thing I like about his prose. So I don't know if it's just that I like the gravesness even in poetry form, or I like uh, his poetry qua poetry. Certainly, his poetry is core to his best crazy book which is The White Goddess. I don't want to jump the gun and go right to The White Goddess and ruin everyone's fun because we should probably give a, a, a tip of the cap to I, Claudius, his sort of very free and certainly very loose translation of Suetonius into uh, the first-person novel form uh, as, as dictated by the Emperor Claudius. Everyone of a certain age will remember, some of them with a jolt of electricity, uh, the BBC production starring Derek Jacobi as Claudius and a nearly endless selection of naked ladies that your parents would still let you watch. Because <laughs> it was on PBS. Because <laughs> it was on PBS. It was classy. But uh, everyone's impression, I think, of ancient Rome has been permanently altered by I, Claudius, if they've read it or seen it, which I guess was Suetonius's plan at the beginning. So good for you, Suetonius. Well done. And certainly good for you, Robert Graves. His other historical novels, um, Count Belisarius, I liked, but not as much as I liked the book, I, Claudius. King Jesus, I think, was sort of, he, he, he was aiming high and missed, which is creditable, but maybe it's, I don't consider it a mandatory 
Robert Graves' novel to read. Do you have a different opinion of the novels? Um, I have to say that I uh, got partway through I, Claudius, and Bogged Down. Oh, uh, no. He did, not, he did not keep me on the page. Um, now, that may be unfair, uh, because I was in the middle of it when I went to Gen Con one year. And uh, never be in the middle of a book when you go to Gen Con, because that book do not do that. will not get picked up again. No. So I'm not, uh, I'm not saying that uh, I dislike Graves, but that he, he didn't keep me on the page. Didn't keep you on the page. And if you look back now at the BBC adaptation, it also may seem, uh, you know, Naked Ladies Notwithstanding. A little stodgy. Somewhat quaint, because it's yes. shot in the 1970s... Uh, two pound, uh, six pence uh, budget. Uh, and it seems weirdly like a daytime soap now, even though it has incredible actors, especially yes. the, you know, Derek Jacoby is extremely memorable in that role, but just the production values and even the pacing, there was like a, a decade long period where the BBC didn't bother to get the actors to pick up their cues. And so mm-hmm. there's just long pauses and stuff. The energy just isn't there. So, um, I'm surprised they haven't Redone it, although I guess they kind of did with the HBO Rome miniseries. Yeah, although that was the Julius, not so much the Julio Claudians. Anyway, and I haven't read uh, somehow uh, Hercules, my shipmate, which is his Jason and the Argonauts uh, redo of um, uh, the Argonautica, possibly because I always had the sense that um, Hercules dies like at the very beginning of the Argonautica or goes away. He leaves the show. <laughs> is written out, goes into his sequel. Hercules is on a mission in space. He's on a mission in space. That's why he can't solve every other problem. Um, and so I, maybe I just subconsciously assume that it's only the first third of the Argonautica, but I'm sure that, uh, Robert Graves of all people would, would know how to fix that. So probably that's a little treasure that I've left for myself in the future. People who've read it, feel free to chime in in the, in the comments and let us know if it's good. But right. he's also the author of a, uh, once classic, and again, I think now kind of slightly deprecated uh, reference book from 1955, The Greek Myths. Yeah. In which he goes now we're getting the good stuff. And retells uh, the Greek myths in his uh, own inimitable style. And uh, uh, classicists will argue, I think, with some of his interpretations. Oh, so to, yeah. So you have to know that you're getting the Robert Graves version. So, you know, this is not going to be your standard reference for the myths. And also the uh, treatment of them, the pro style, sometimes has the Greek gods uh, and demigods speaking somewhat like Edwardian gentlemen. So I'm going to read uh, a little bit from the youth of Hercules. This is any numbers, all of the myths and uh, has them into little sub bits. And then there's all kinds of footnotes and stuff. Elsamine, fearing Hera's jealousy, exposed her newly born child in a field outside the walls of Thebes. And here, at Zeus's instigation, Athena took Hera for a casual stroll. Look, my dear, what a wonderfully robust child, said Athena, pretending surprise as she stopped to pick him up. His mother must have been out of her mind to abandon him in a stony field. Come, you have milk. Give the poor little creature suck. Thoughtlessly, Hera took him and bared her breast, at which Heracles drew with such force that she flung him down in pain, and a spurt of milk flew across the sky and became the Milky Way. The young monster, Hera cried. So that's sort of the, the, it's a little bit plummy now, but nonetheless, I think it would be fun to do a whole campaign in which the uh, Greek gods all talk like that and have 
cucumber sandwiches in between, uh, you know, felling cities and fighting monsters and stuff. Robin, you you and I do not know each other. Is that correct? You are a random person. Uh, we've never met. Never met. I'm, I'm unfamiliar with you and all of your work. Exactly. You have randomly selected the Youth of Heracles from Robert Graves. We will now go, because each of them is footnoted to the specific mythological source, so that footnotes it to uh, Diodorus Siculus and Pausanias. And from a study of the fragmentary work of Lycophron. So those are the sources of the myths. So he's not just making stuff up. This is all from yes. actual myths. The making myths. stuff up will get to you the later. The making stuff up happens next. <laughs> 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 According to another account, this is the same thing. And now we have a second set of footnotes where he explains what the myths mean for the woke student of myth. According to another account, the Milky Way was formed when Rhea forcibly weaned Zeus. Hera's suckling of Heracles is a myth apparently based on the sacred king's ritual rebirth from the queen mother. And now we begin to open the magical door that makes the Greek myths the best thing ever. Yeah. Because he is a, he is the oldest of old school, uh, Fraserians. Even in 1955, when he was writing, Fraser was being slowly edged out the, the living room by anthropologists and, as the potty old uncle. Who, who Fraser is. James G. Fraser was a anthropologist who produced a staggeringly erudite work of comparative mythology called The Golden Bough, in which he demonstrated that all human myths are basically the same myth of the uh, sacred king who is born sacrificed and rises again. And the sacred king ties into the cycles of the, of the seasons and the specific cycles of vegetation. And that you can map every single myth in the world to this base or myth. That is the fundamental story behind everything at the time. It was seen as very, very radical because it implied and practically stated outright, although he never quite does it. Uh, he doesn't do it in the first two volumes. He may have snuck it in back in volume 11 where I stopped. Uh, paying attention, but he basically implies that Jesus is just such a myth, just like all of the other myths of Osiris and, and everybody else. And so you needn't worry your little pretty head about Christianity because we were going to su supersede all this myth talk with proper scientific anthropology any day now. Right. And, and the golden bow, uh, the full version of it, uh, is a tome in Call of Cthulhu that has uh, does it cost you sin or, or no? It, it gives you occult points and it does not cost you sin. Okay, but it but it gives you occult and I think anthropology um, when yeah. you read it. Hence, you are here to talk to us today. Hence, I am here to talk to you today. But the footnotes to the footnotes or the foot the other footnotes, the second set of footnotes to uh, Graves's uh, myths explain in varying degrees of madness how each of the myths ties into the Fraserian Ur structure and into Robert Graves's often entirely, do I want to say speculative, entirely speculative reconstruction of Greek prehistory, which again, in 1955, it's still barely reasonable that you would believe things like Pelasgians existed. And he, you know, would say, no, this is obviously the proto-Pelasgians who went and settled Ireland. And you're like, yeah, sure. That makes a lot of sense, Robert Graves, backing away slowly. But right. it's because it's so compellingly wired into these myths that we all remember from Bullfinch and Dolaire, the plausibility vector of it skyrockets. And I'm always amazed that this is assigned in, like, you know, high schools and colleges without, you know, uh, lead-lined gloves to read it with, because it contains... So much beautiful foaming entry drug to the madness of Fraser and to the madness of sort of weirdly Edwardian, as you point out, 
uh, archaeology that well, it's a very respectable Pelican Books trade uh, dress of of the volumes. Yeah, like they, they're just sold as straight up respectable reference books. And and uh-huh. and, and Robert Graves is a straight up respectable author in the canon yeah. still barely, but yes, these are. These are no longer scholarly, even to the extent they were in 1955. They are now, they, they just keep getting crazier, and I love them for it. And also, the great thing about the Greek myths is it provides a corrective to Bullfinch, because as we saw, Graves will write up, contradict his own myth. He'll say, hey, here's the other version of that story, and here's the sourcing for it. And so, you don't anymore have this notion that Zeus is one god who sort of uh, everyone began worshiping Zeus in 1200 BC, and then they stopped worshiping Zeus uh, in Jesus times, and now we're done with Zeus. You sort of get the sense, no, Zeus is a bunch of composite figures that are all sort of blended together to make Zeus in the same way that Batman is not just one Batman. He's Adam West, and he's Frank Miller Batman, and he's Val Kilmer with nipples, and he's the, all of the, the Brave Batman. and the Bold Batman, who had a totally different continuity uh, exactly. back before that was a thing. Exactly. He's all he's all jammed up in a whole bunch of, he goes into space, and he has uh, psychic dreams, and he teams up with Clark Kent, and, dresses, and they dresses each other, and then they have super sons, and there's just a million different possible Batmans, but they're all still Batman in the same way Zeus or Poseidon or Hera are these conglomerate figures that are created by the myth, the, the mythological process and the mythopoesis that Hesiod and Homer do relatively late in the religious cycle is as much a bit of continuity building as anything Lynn Carter ever did to the Lovecraft mythos. And once you sort of grok that it would sort of, I guess, Fraserian, but on a structural level understanding I think the Greek myths really unlocks a lot because the the Greek mythology is the one that I think everyone still knows. Um, I think many people now know it better than they know Christian mythology, for better or for worse. And so that sort of Gravesian unlocking still performs a really valuable service. So if you read the Greek myths, I hesitate to say correctly, but if you read it from that perspective, I think you still take away a real depth charge of understanding in a way that I think would make Graves happy even today, even if he knows that you're laughing your your tail off at all the Fraserian stuff. Now, uh, you mentioned uh, being speculative, but the word that Graves used was analeptic thought. There you go. Analeptic thought in which you cast your mind back into the past and it is revealed to you. And I guess this finally brings us uh, to a, uh, a, this segment is becoming as vast as Greek mythology. Or itself. as Robert Graves' uh, oeuvre. <laughs> uh, to, to the White Goddess in 1948. I read this in high school and um, found it somewhat dense, but uh, but got through it and, and liked the idea that there was some great underlying uh, truth behind mythology that could be uh, limbed. Uh, and certainly all sorts of other people have liked the idea that uh, Graves puts forth in it, which is basically that the or form of religion is a matriarchal religion. And there's lots of people who still uh, uh, practice in that vein and uh, want to think that so, although sadly the archaeology is not really panning out on that one. Well, uh, the, the one of the world's experts on uh, matriarchal religion taught at the University of Chicago, and one of her students told me that her advice is if you are ever in a time machine and you get out and you discover that you're in a uh, a matriarchy, get back in your time machine and run 
because apparently <laughs> they were all like very, very brutal to, to strangers. They were very xenophobic cultures. And that may be that she was a classical or a Mediterranean archaeologist, not modern day, because of course there's matriarchal cultures in East Africa and in um, uh, the North America that are, you know, no more or less xenophobic than any other African or American culture. But apparently those Mediterranean goddess cultures that everyone loved to dig up were bad news. So stay away. The white goddess, I read it in, I think freshman year in college. And it, it's one of those things that I'm very glad I read it when I did, because I just barely had the grounding to realize that he was crazy as a bed bug. <laughs> because if I'd read it, too young, it very well could have rewritten me because the sort of, he wrote it. I mean, he says right in the, in the preface, this is a work of poetic inspiration. This is a work of poetry. It's just a work of poetry in the form of a dense thicket of nonsense linguistics about poetry <laughs> in, in which he's attempting to understand a specific Welsh poem that is the alphabet of the trees and um or the battle of the trees and he decides that the battle of the trees represents an alphabet and that the alphabet the symbolic alphabet then represents everything that it's the you stages. gotta give him credit for planting his own red flag holy bananas right in the preface i give him so much credit the white goddess is it, i absolutely understand if someone reads that and has an initiatory experience because i came 85 percent of the way to an initiatory experience and i knew it was bananas so it's just it's it's fantastic it's phenomenal um, uh, GURPS Celtic Myth borrowed its weird structure for its magic system. So if you don't want to read The White Goddess, but do want to look at the Robert Graves crazy word-based magic system, you should take a look at GURPS Celtic Myth. But it's, it's a, it's a magnificent thing. If you haven't read it, it's just a, it will also cure you of believing that someone who is smart is necessarily correct. Because Robert <laughs> Graves knows more about Welsh mythology and Greek mythology and poetry and all of that than I ever will. And he's still wronger than a $3 bill. It's, it, and it will just lay it out. This guy is unquestionably a genius and unquestionably wrong. It's not where someone's an idiot and believing this stuff. He is a poetic genius and a regular people genius. And he is inspired to be wrong. And that is a, that's another great lesson that I think Robert Graves teaches us. And I found the white goddess just riveting, just the sort of the depth and the, 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 the no bottom to this well, that the farther down you go, the more weird crap you can uncover and the more stuff that turns out to be connected to. I think it, much of what I write now is sort of my attempt at Gravesian analeptic thought. Uh, but rather than thinking what is poetically true, I think what is gamerly cool. Uh, I guess, or what would be, um, uh, what would be more interesting and, and awesome if it were true. And so that sort of half Charles Fort, half Robert Graves, that's, that's me right there. Uh, well, that sounds like a, a concluding note. We could probably continue to talk, uh, on, uh, Graves for many other segments. So in fact, Patreon backers, if you want to ask us a more specific question, uh, we'd be happy to, uh, pick that up in a later podcast. We haven't even brought up Lawrence of Arabia yet. That's, that's See, the life I'm you trying have. to conclude the segment, Ken. So let's yes. conclude the segment. Maybe some intrepid Patreon backer will ask for the, uh, Lawrence, uh, Graves connection. You never know what our wacky backers are, are going to ask us. To talk they, about. they could demand more on the white goddess. They could want us to lay out a sacred alphabet. I don't know what they Let's want. Let's get out of this segment, man. Get out of the segment. Cast ourselves into the past.
Western is coming! Yeehaw! Yeehaw indeed, Owlhoot. Strap on your boots, your holster, and your Stetson for a game full of the Old West feel. Play ruthless desperados. Merciless bounty hunters. Courageous native warriors. Corrupt Indian agents. And fire and brimstone preachers. Ranch wars flare. Rumors of gold summon thousands of adventurers. Peaceful towns live in fear of outlaw gangs and justice is executed by the fastest gun. This award-winning Swedish game comes in two core books, one for character creation play, the other a giant toolbox for game masters. You can also find five ready-to-play scenarios and various tools for the GM in its Kickstarter, Kickstarting Now! Ride the range to a time and place in need of heroes! Kickstart Western, the role-playing game! This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like... Stephen Brandon Ethan Cordray Garrett Fitzgerald Jeff Cars and Jean-Francois Paradis The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the resolutely shoved aside copy of the Greek myths and <laughs> the benevolent gaze it's, of Peter Frampton coming encroaching. alive. Welcome us once more to the Gaming Hut. The only Greek myths I want to hear in this segment are in deities and demigods. Deities and demigods, ones, baby. And you can kill them. The fiend folio. That's where the myths go. Yeah. And in the Gaming Hut, we have a question that is, I don't think that this was a Patreon backer question. I think this was a Robin question. This is my question. Robin? Your question is... The question is, half-elves, what's their deal? What's their deal? Well, Robin, when a boy and a girl like each other very much, and one of them is an elf, first of all, that totally explains why they like each other very much, because have you seen elves? And then often, or maybe not often, depending on your cosmology, there will be a fruit of their like, and that fruit of their like is a half-elf. Well... That's the simulationist answer. <laughs> and if I have to explain why Viggo Mortensen and Liv Tyler want to get it on, then we need a bigger hut. <laughs> right. So the question is not why are uh, humans attracted to elves, and but why versa. are human players attracted to playing half-elves? Oh. And, and why are half-elves a, a trope in F20? Because... They have been from the very beginning, and they still are in D&D, and therefore other offshoots of D&D. But if you're looking at just sort of sound storytelling principles, uh, you want images and tropes and, and archetypes that are either uh, one thing or they're the other thing, right? You want, uh, you want vanilla ice cream or you want chocolate ice cream. But here, uh, we know that over the uh, 40 years plus that people have been playing D&D, that a lot of people... What they really want is to play vanilla walnut, uh, which is your half-elf. is sort of one, not one thing, not the other thing. And I think the idea of the half where do you think the idea of the half-elf came about as a, as a game artifact in early D&D? All right. First, I want to stop because someone's going to send in, the people are poised right now to write comments and say, actually, it was not in the very beginning of D&D because in White Box, there was no half-elves. So, yeah, we get it. We mean super early. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, the idea comes from Elrond, uh, who is famously half-elven, or actually technically six-sixteenths human. And he and his twin brother, Bob, or whatever his stupid brother is, I don't know, Ellison, I think, <laughs> um, they, they get to pick early as to whether they want to be elves or men. And Elrond picks elf, and his brother picks man. And so it's a lovely Tolkienian bit that he does to contrast the world of elves and the world of men, because that's part of his bit. And uh, then Elrond becomes Elrond, and we all love Elrond. So 
at some point you're asking, where did it come from? It came from the fact that Gygax read Tolkien and put a half, put half elves in his game. I think a lot of it also came from that, that very desire to be neither fish nor fowl that you talk about where you, you don't want to play full on elf because that involves a lot of weird stuff, but you, you sort of like the idea of that plus one dex bonus and a little dark vision now and again. So you have that desire to be, you know, sort of cooler than people, but still people. As opposed Special to, without being different. Right. And back in the day, elves used to have a level cap, right? You, you, yeah. could, you could only ascend so far as an elf. So people wanted the, the cool elf powers, but they also didn't want to have a level cap. So they'd say, what if I'm a half elf like Elrond? And then everyone would go, oh, for crying out loud. Sure. All right. Whatever. And so I think that's where it was born from people who wanted to play elves, but didn't want level caps. Right. And I think that's uh, one of the really fascinating things about this is that it is an example of a couple of game artifacts interacting in a weird way that then goes on to become a trope to which people are emotionally attached. Because, of course, uh, you said that elves had level caps. They don't in other versions of D&D because that was a weird idea. Well, he was trying to make elves rare, being Gary. That's how he did it. Yes, um, because, of course, uh, and there's a whole lot of stuff in particularly in early D&D, and I think some of them have come back into the new 5th uh, edition that's supposed to have a classic feel of uh, you go through long stretches where the characters aren't balanced against one another, but over time they become balanced because for a while your character gets to dominate and then the wizard becomes more awesome. And so that's uh, part of that idea is, well, you can play a super cool character for 11 levels, and then you're hosed. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not something you would uh, revisit in, in a design today. But in the meantime, that led people to start playing half-elves. And you, you, we've mentioned that other idea of special without being inaccessible. And then on top of that, then for um, many years, it has been the uh, effort of uh, game designers and setting designers to, since people expect half-elves to be a thing, uh, which they wouldn't have if, if Gary hadn't made that original decision back when, uh, to give them dimension and and feeling. And so I recently had a occasion to draw a picture of a half-elf for an, an upcoming T-shirt. And <laughs> and so I, I did a Google image search to see, well, what do artists think that half-elves look like today? And the answer is that today's modern conception of, of a half-elf is that he's kind of punky and savage. Now, part of this is just that D&D went through a couple of different punky phases. Yeah. You know, there's the, the third edition punky phase, and then you get Pathfinder's uh, sort of spiky anime look. Um, but also, I think that conjures up a sort of a, a retroactive explanation of why half-elves are interesting in that they have the the wildness and nobility of elves and the savagery of humans. Well, they're, they're good-looking rebels who live by a code of their own, literally by <laughs> definition, right? Yes. I just figured that half-elves look like Orlando Bloom, right? That he is an actual half-elf and that that explains Orlando Bloom. <laughs> not, not, not his character Legolas, but Orlando <laughs> no, Bloom No, no, no. Legolas is a full elf. Everyone knows that. But, but right. they cast it, – it's, it's progressive casting. They found a half-elf to play an elf. I think that that's very forward-looking of Peter Jackson. Right. Well, we could have a whole other segment of, of which half-elves uh, walk among us. Yeah. You know, I think most Manic Pixie dream girls, of course, are probably half-elves. Yeah? Uh, I don't know. Um, anyway, yeah, that that is a whole different segment. And possibly <laughs> That's a digression. One that we're wise not to record. Uh, but, uh, but yes, I mean, I, I think that uh, to my maybe because I grew up in the pre-punk D&D era, pre-punky D&D era, my half-elves look like Orlando Bloom, 
but they don't have the full on pointy ears and the, and the great big long limbs that elves do. They just sort of look like an average between an elf and a people. Right. They, they're, they're little elfy, but they can grow a mustache. Right. Yeah. But like a wispy Orlando Bloom mustache, not a proper one. Right. Yeah. And so in, if you're called upon to play a, a classical half elf, how do you distinguish him? How do you make him his own distinct thing? If you've got a human player sitting on one side of you and an elf player on the other side, is your shtick in the game to just sort of be the mediator between them? I think your shtick in the game is to randomly agree with them. So, like, if they're fighting, like, you're like, oh, my elf nature calls me to agree with Beleriand here. And then they keep fighting. It's like, oh, I think that my human blood says that Torvel is correct. And you sort of go back and forth and you're, and you're never happy. And you're sort of playing Spock in a way. Like you've got that human part of you that Spock you is half human, half Vulcan. He has pointy ears. Pointy ears. He is yep. a half elf. He is a half elf. And only his evil version can grow a facial hair. Can grow facial hair. I think that's another, um, uh, that may be another sort of secret explanation for why half elves really took off is because literally everyone who played D and D for the first probably decade of its existence love the hell out of Spock. And that's sort of like coded on a basal level that if you got pointy ears and you're half human, that's cool. And so that sort of draws that in. But I think that I, you know, depending on, on the sort of the nature of the game, ideally what you do is you make sure that you're a rogue and that the human is a fighter and that the elf is a ranger so that you have niche protection. But in, in terms of your, your inner elf or your inner human, um, presented as an internal conflict. I mean, that's what I do it because it's more interesting. Right. And also Spock and then the half elves, uh, detoxify to an extent a previous pop culture trope, which comes in the Western, which is the half breed. Right. Uh, which is, uh, goes back to the legacy of being really concerned with how many drops of blood you have from, uh, different, uh, areas of your, uh, phenotype. And, uh, this, both Spock and the half elves sort of move that into the realm of the uh, imaginary and uh, uh, hopefully uh, drain uh, at least some of the uh, poison out of that. Uh, because, of course, that was a, a huge concern uh, in American society and elsewhere uh, up until about the 50s and 60s when Spock comes along and sort of uh, adds a kumbaya uh, in space aspect to it. And, and again, the half-breed was, it was both a you know pernicious thing that grew out of institutional racism, but it was also a sort of an attempt to make your character cooler than regular white people yeah. because he was in touch with the noble savage part of Indians in a way that white people just couldn't. And so uh, Natty Bumpo is, is, is white on both sides, but all of Natty Bumpo's spiritual descendants pretty much gained Indian blood at some level or some remove. Some of them were, were half Indian, half uh, white. Some of them were, you know, one fourth Indian or whatever. And even down to Rambo, who is famously half German, half Cherokee in the script to explain why he's more badass than anyone. Cause he's like the fightingest kind of white guy and the awesomest kind of Indian. And he's blended up. And I, I guess it was before they had Lakota. So you couldn't have said that, but, but that was Rambo was he was a half breed. And that, and that was what makes Rambo such a liminal character as well. And it's, and it's just laid right out there in the script and they say it and then they move through. But that, because he's played by a big goofy Italian, you don't really think about it, but it is actually the, the, the case in the, in the sort of story universe that the Rambo also exists between these two worlds and the better Rambo movies present this sort of 
he's torn between the world of war and the world of peace, and he can't really live in either one. And so that makes him a more psychologically complex character, words you don't usually expect to hear about Rambo, than sort of your standard Mac Bolan type guy. Right. Uh, well, uh, once we're talking about the... Uh, once we've connected half-elves to Rambo, I think we have uh, free-associated ourselves uh, through a, a segment, and it's time to move on to our final segment of this podcast. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's Puppet Land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you. It's time once again to wend our way up the creaky cobweb stairs to wave at the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky and head on in to chat with the consulting occultist. And at this instance, our chat comes at the behest of Patreon backer Tim Vert, who wants to know about Harry Houdini's Ghostbusters, uh, the skeptical uh, ghost-busting efforts uh, and psychic-busting efforts of the uh, stage magician and escape artist Harry Houdini, I think, are uh, well-known, but I think we don't necessarily know about his uh, partners in anti-paranormal uh, investigation. I guess before, since there are some uh, kids who weirdly listen to this podcast and they're behind on their reading, do you want to very, very quickly uh, ground uh, those who do not know in who Harry Houdini was? Sure. Um, I'm fairly sure that everyone knows who Harry Houdini is, but why not educate? Harry Houdini, born Eric Weiss, was a Hungarian-American. He grew up as a, sort of a magician's partner, uh, worked with his brother in a, sort of a vaudeville magic act. Slowly, his stage presence and his really kind of insane physical mastery of himself led him to be the greatest stage magician and the greatest, certainly greatest escape artist that has ever trod the American stage. He was one of the first global celebrities, certainly one of the first American global celebrities, and died tragically young, age 52, of peritonitis that uh, he got because he had a bit where people would punch him in the stomach as hard as they possibly could, and because he was so incredibly powerful, he would just tighten up his stomach muscles and it would bounce off harmlessly. Well, some goofball didn't say, hey, Houdini, I'm going to punch you. They just punched him and it burst his appendix. So Sucker punch. Sucker punch, exactly. So Houdini was, like I say, a global figure, of, you know, just Tom Cruise level famous and had a mad on for spiritualists because... When his mother died, he, uh, in his grief, went to spiritualists and very rapidly realized that they were uh, crooks, that they were con men, hoodwinkers, bad people preying on the bereaved. And he said, if, well, if you know your stage magic, you're going to spot 
what they're doing. Exactly. And so as a uh, global celebrity, he decided to turn his uh, powers to good and began debunking spiritualists. And so he would first show up at spirit mediums seances and then he would like turn lights on suddenly and say, Oh, look at that. Their hands in the, in the jar or whatever. And then they, he would, he offered like a huge reward for a spiritualist who could reproduce spiritual uh, phenomenon in his presence. And they would try and he would unmask them with his magic powers or rather his power of knowing what magic was, uh, not his magic powers and went through his life on a increasingly, um, uh, devoted, uh, not to say manic campaign against, uh, spirit mediums. And among the people that he utilized in this campaign were his team of ghostbusters or ghost breakers, which brings us to the original question. Yes. Yes, indeed. So, uh, th- were they called the ghost breakers? Um, I believe that they were called, no, Houdini called them his secret service. And one of his, uh, his, sort of his top investigator, a woman named Rose Mackenberg, called herself the spook spy. So that's pretty good. There's a Bob Hope film called The Ghost Breakers, which implies that it is current, at least in the 40s uh, or early 30s. I forget exactly when the film came out. And so it's not impossible that uh, Houdini used the, the term ghost breakers. But I don't more think more likely they... some newspaper man slapped right. it on him. Yes. But so um, uh, he had a number of a number of agents who would go out. Um, there was Houdini's niece, Julia Sawyer. There was a showgirl named Alberta Chapman. There was uh, guys as well. Some of them were trained uh, stage magicians or close-up magicians. A guy named Amadeo Vaca, a guy named Robert Geisel. Lovecraft's friend C.M. Eddy, who was uh, apparently his man in New England. And so they would go into the city to covertly investigate the spirit mediums. And they would, you know, sign into the seance as Francis Rod. So F. Rod, right? Or Alicia (laughs) Bunk. And, <laughs> and so, and they would wear disguises and, and it was this sort of ongoing thing. And then Houdini would get death threats from psychics. And so he would say, everyone has to carry guns. So he's got gun toting ghost breakers fanning out in area cities, bringing it to the spiritualists. And, and was one of them a brick and another one like the face person or do we have a full fledged player character party here? Well, Houdini is the, is the brick of all bricks, right? I think that yeah. these are like, you know, Jimmy Olsen and, and Lois Lane going out and then it's like, well, all right, time for Superman to bust in. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's the Buffy. <laughs> yeah, right. He's Buffy. They're the Scoobs. But um, obviously, they have, you know, uh, they, they have a very particular set of skills as well in terms of psychic investigation, knowledge of stage magic, and straight up face man con artistry of themselves because they have to lie to the spiritualists, the spirit mediums, about, you know, their uh, dead nephew or their or, or fiance or whatever it was that they're trying to communicate with. And they have to sell that and make that believable to the con artist. So there's sort of this really great just rich ongoing activity. And it's a shame because historically it only goes from, you know, uh, say 19, what, what is, I think his mother dies in like 20 or 22, um, to his death in 26. So it's, it's not very long, but for a while there, or in the 1920s, so the official story tells, us. or so the official story tells, but of us. course, when Harry Houdini dies, therefore taking off the universal problem solving character off the table, presumably, the dusty, boring pages of histories tell us that his uh, ghost breakers broke up, but presumably that's when your campaign begins. Right. And uh, you find out, you know, there are multiple psychics uh, threatening Houdini 
this uh, college student comes up and sucker punches in. Well, who's really behind that? And that's your first installment. Now, I guess it's against the spirit of Houdini, though, to have this be anything other than the Scooby-Doo mythos, right? It has to always turn out to not be something yeah. supernatural unless Houdini winds up in a pyramid. You could maybe get away because of the Lovecraft connection. Uh, Lovecraft ghost wrote one adventure for Harry Houdini. Uh, the guy who, uh, Walter Gibson, the guy who invented the shadow ghost wrote some other ones. So you could barely get to the psychic powers of the East or buried giant ghoul mummies. If you wanted to and stay within the confines of the Houdini mythos, I think you could maybe make this story work because Houdini did leave instructions with apparently 20 of his closest friends that if there was life after death, he was going to come back and he was going to send them a message. And Rose Mackenberg, of course, said, no, he did not come back. He did not send me a message. It's nonsense. But that, of course, could have been covering up because his message might have been the Yithians are coming. The Yithians are coming or whatever else happens. Mankind must not know the truth of of of, uh, of spiritualism because it would destroy us. So you have to keep destroying it. I mean, we don't know. Right. It was a secret. That's the whole point. Right. But I think that you would want like in the Karnacki stories, you would want a lot of them to be fakes, that they would have to be Scooby-Doo's con artists, people who are, you know, just uh, grifting or using other weird physical powers that are not spiritual. So you could have mutants, right? Someone who's got like a third arm growing out of their back, and that's how they are able to manipulate all the stuff, but they're not ghosts. And that could maybe give you a little bit of a, of a, of a variance as opposed to just one yet, uh, yet another person with 12 points in carpentry has figured out how to make a spirit box. Right. And you could have, uh, you could have your mad scientist doing bad things with radium. Yes. Or, or, and with other things with tiny little robots or, or a homunculi that run around and, and, and pretend to be ghosts. And, uh, you could certainly have a, uh, you know, a, a Jekyll Hyde figure who is, uh, you know, preternaturally, uh, strong when he's, hopped up on this uh, new cocaine derivative that he's uh, come up with. So you could kind of do the kind of Doctor Who thing of it seems to be supernatural, but then the real thing going on, it turns out to me more sort of science-y. And for things that are straight out hoaxes, you have to, I think, probably, except for the first time you do it, graft on some additional level of emotional stake because uh, you get uh, a group of geeks together in a room, they're disappointed when it's not a monster. Mm-hmm. So you know, it has to be some other emotional reason for you to really care about unmasking the the person at the end instead of just finding, oh, no, it's another um, real estate development theme. Now, it turns out that real estate developers in general, uh, we still need to be very wary of them, e- even today, Yes, uh, whether they have rubber masks on or not. They're they are up to no good, traditionally. Yes. And uh, and certainly uh, see also our, our Harry Chandler segment from a, a week or so ago. Well, um, see see literally any big city. Yes, <laughs> this is this is not controversial news, people. Yeah, so uh, that gives us sort of the outline of our campaign. And I suppose you could do something where uh, modern day characters are the descendants of the various uh, ghost breakers, and they. Uh, whether you're doing the, uh, oh yeah, there's really a mythos thing going on. And well, you, you can kick it off with Houdini coming back from the dead and yeah. giving them a message and saying, here's my message. I'm back from the dead. They're going to find me. But as the greatest escape artist in the world, I've literally escaped from hell. Here's the news. Ah! And then it's like, oh, we have to rescue Houdini. Yeah. And then a, a demon comes out in a brimstone cloud and sucker punches him back mm-hmm. into hell. Suck- exactly. Um, there is a possibility that um, uh, Houdini 
was uh, murdered, uh, according to some people. There is a book called, I think it's called The Secret Life of Houdini, um, that argues that he was murdered either by evil spiritualists or by the hated British, because he was also uh, worked as a secret agent for the United States as a secret uh, service guy, and that the hated British might have killed him for reasons that make little enough sense in the book. But if you're looking for bad guys, you could say, you know, maybe it wasn't the hated British. Maybe it was some other bad people, communists or somebody. I don't know why the communists would want to kill someone who is a thoroughly materialist. Well, because he was also thoroughly capitalist. Anyway, I've answered my own problem. Yeah. But the point is, if you want to go into his death, there is enough weird crap around it that you could say, oh, this is a cover up. This is a story. This is a, this is a shuck. This is a work. Houdini either faked his own death and is fighting the great race of yet from behind the scenes, or Houdini was murdered by a conspiracy, and you have to uncover that conspiracy, and that can give your 1920s characters uh, something to do in each town that they're going to. And so you have sort of a parallel story. On the one hand, you're going to town, you're going to break up spiritualists because it's what Houdini wants, but you're also going to see if these guys are connected to this conspiracy of spiritualists that may or may not have been backed by the hated Soviets. Or whatever. Well, and and you, I, I believe I heard you say, Robin, why would the communists want to kill Houdini? And of course, that's because he was demonstrating that the proletariat could free themselves from their chains without communist ideology. Exactly right. That so uh, it was a bad. It was a bad message. The the act of a, of a of a single of a single individual can overcome class restrictions. That's true. You, you have nothing to escape from but your chains. I guess he would say. Yeah. And and switching to you have nothing to escape from but your oversized milk can. <laughs> a less euphonious. B he could get out of milk cans too. So right. And and Lenin couldn't famously. <laughs> <laughs> um. So have we uh, have we left any crumbs on the on the table or are we ready to uh, uh, call for our uh, a server and to head on out to the next podcast? I mean, there's the, obviously Houdini is one of those sort of ultra legendary figures around which there is more beautiful, juicy meat than any table can hold. I do want to mention that Rose Mackenberg's book about her experiences exists and is probably a or text for this very campaign. So if you hunt that down, uh, you could find it. And her nickname was the Rev because she had accumulated a bunch of phony spiritualist diplomas and titles uh, while she was going around investigating people. And so in addition to pretending to be a bereaved uh, a widow, uh, which she did apparently about a dozen times and had never been married, stayed single her whole life, um, <laughs> because I think if you go through and you're like assuming that everyone is lying to you, it becomes a lot harder to get married. But also, she must also have been someone who in uh, impersonated a spiritualist to get these sort of phony diplomas. And so she's learning this this uh, occult uh, underworld as well. So if there's an occult underpinning, Rose is probably one of the people who's on top of it and just uh, keeps the faith, keeps the silence, does her job as the chief of Houdini's Ghostbusters. So we've given uh, Tim and the rest of our listeners a whole free campaign right there. Right there. Ready to, ready to go. No cost to you. So I think we can indeed uh, consider our work done. We'll finish off our little espressos here at the table, and then we'll bid adieu to the uh, consulting occultist, bid adieu to all of you listeners, and we'll be back uh, same time next week with more exciting uh, nonsense, perhaps even a touch of analeptic thought. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Torque Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash canonrobin. Escape all chains and milk cans alongside such patrons as... Joe Littrell. Joshua Brumley. Morgan Ellis. Diane Donaldson. And Michael Bowman. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other Erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. New designs include... Okay, okay, I carved the yellow sign into one lousy potato. And Cat Hamlet Half-Elf Robot. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.